Well, if I could have you open up your Bibles, I want you to open up to Second Kings. And I'm going to tell you how this message came about. I have been, for my daily morning Bible reading, I try and do that first thing when I wake up. And by God's grace, I've been doing better at that. Historically in my life, that's not been a strong suit. But I was convicted by Steve's exhortation that I needed to exert more energy on my daily quiet time. And by God's grace, I have been doing much better the last five or six months. I've had one of the most consistent periods in the Word that I can recall. And that's all God's grace. And as most of you know, if you've been here, I was going with several others. And we were in Central America for a week ministering to the people there, and probably a week or two, I could perhaps go back and reconstruct, I was reading in Second Kings. That was my daily reading. And I came across a verse that I could not get out of my mind. I've read through the Bible I don't know how many times, and that's not just bragging when you're in seminary and they've got a gun to your head and they say, read, you read a lot. So I have read through the Bible a lot. I also have done it because I love God's Word. And if you're like me, even though I've been a believer over 20 years now, and I've been a serious student of God's Word for a long time now, there are still times when I'm reading through the Bible and I say, did they just put that in there? Is that I don't even remember that. How, how did that get in there? And this particular verse that I'm eventually going to get to was one of those verses. Now, I'm going to direct your attention to 2 Kings chapter 22. And this is a different message. I don't read my teaching to you, but I normally write out a full manuscript. It helps me think through the material helps me think through the transitions. It helps me organize my thought. It helps me be prepared to be able to teach in an orderly way. This message is different. This is my notes. This is it. And those notes originally were not there when I was in Honduras and before I got really sick in Honduras and I could still think. I just wrote out all these thoughts on paper. It was one of those things that after two or three weeks, when I could not get this out of my heart, I thought, okay, I better write this down. The Lord may use this someday. I do think at some point, by God's grace, I am going to develop this into a sermon. When Pastor Steve is gone, I have opportunities to preach. I will probably preach this. But this all stems from one verse that gripped my heart when I was just reading in the morning before I started my day. But before we get to that one verse, I want us to walk through what the Bible says about Josiah. He was a king from a long time ago, and I think many of us are familiar with Josiah. In the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament, any number of times, you know that most of the kings of Judah or Israel were bad. I think every king of Israel was bad. And very rarely do you see anything good, even in the kingdom of Judah. And Josiah came along at a point in history. 
Now, when you look at, I said to open to Second Kings, and it is Second Kings. My Bible's in First Kings. Forgive me. We have a situation where we had a king named Manasseh. This is actually prior to chapter 22. Manasseh was one of the most wicked men that ever walked the face of the earth. One of the most wicked kings who ever ruled. Go just look a few verses back, for example, in 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Actually, let's go back to verse... Well, I won't even go back far. This is God's indictment of Manasseh. But in verse 16, it talks about the fact that Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin with which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. That is a bad man. can't even imagine how much murder he committed, how much devastation he wrought. And he was an idolater and a pursuer of false gods. He had a son named Ammon. He probably had many sons, but in verse eighteen or verse nineteen rather it says when Ammon was twenty two years old, when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, verse twenty, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. For he walked in all the way that his father had walked, and served the idols that his father had served, and worshipped them. So he forsook the Lord the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Now, this is just an historical count, which is accurate, but this was not a good time in the spiritual life of Judah. This wasn't a good time in the spiritual life of this unique people that God had placed his favor upon and pulled them out of all the heathen nations and said, you're my people. They didn't have anything to do with God. And God promised he was going to punish the nation. God was not overlooking this wickedness, and the wickedness was great. And then the last verse in our English Bibles of chapter 21 says this. He was buried in his grave, meaning Ammon, in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son became king in his place. 22 verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, right there, that's an interesting historical fact that at eight years old, he is the king. He had no godly legacy. If he could remember anything at eight, it wasn't anything good. Because between his grandfather and his father, it was unabated wickedness. Wicked to the core. Idolatry, complete abandonment of the one true God... This was a little boy with responsibility thrust on him before he could possibly even act on it with a wicked, wicked family heritage. Yet if you are familiar, at least with the story, even if you didn't know where it was, 2 Kings 22, Josiah was a unique young man. If you look down to verse 3, Actually, verse 2, rather. It says this, talking about Josiah. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. 
Those are staggering words in the Old Testament. There are so few people that did that. Those would be staggering words today if, any of one, if it could be said about any one of us that we never turn from the right or the left. And God did something extraordinary with his people during the reign of Josiah. I'm going to walk you through chapter 22, but before I do, somebody tell me, what's the first thing that jumps out at you? If you're remembering this story, what happened when Josiah was the king? Anybody? Beth? A little bit farther along. Talking about he was the one where they found the law of God. So so we're going to look at that a little more closely. But that's when I think of Josiah, if I remember a Bible story, I remember, oh, they found the law. So, So let's walk through here because I want to help you see a picture. There was unabated wickedness. And God said, I'm going to judge it. It was unabated through two generations. And then Josiah came along. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, an amazing thing happened. Josiah was already, according to the text, he was, he was, looks like he was getting ready to try and repair the temple to do some things differently. And it says this in verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Now, it's interesting because then he takes the book back to the king and he says, hey, they found the law. One of the commands of God was that every king of Israel was supposed to have a copy of the law, was supposed to write it down so he could lead the people. I can assure you Manasseh and his son didn't have any use for God's law. And verse 10 says something very interesting. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. We don't know every aspect of the law that was read, but this was the law of God in some detail that had been buried and forgotten. And it's found when they're going through the rubble, cleaning up. It's kind of like going through your garage or your attic, and it's like, oh, I didn't even remember I had that. Somebody finds it, and through God's sovereignty, it comes to the king, and it's read in his presence. Verse 11 says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. That was just an expression of dismay, of despair. And verse 13 tells us why. He tells his various religious leaders, you've got to go find somebody and talk to God for me. Verse 13, go inquire the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of God that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. That is conviction. That's an awareness of who God is. As soon as he heard the words of the law, and we don't know specifically everything that was read, but we know, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, towards the end of his life, Moses had the people divided up, and he said, if you obey, you will be blessed beyond anything you could ever imagine. But if you disobey, you will be cursed. 
And God will pour out his wrath against you. And Josiah knew that's what was stored up for them. It was panic. I can't even imagine. He'd never even heard these things, perhaps. If he had heard them, he didn't remember them. When he heard them, he knew we are in trouble. Now, it's interesting because his religious leaders, according to what follows, they actually went and they found a prophetess. And basically, God said, what you heard is right. Wrath is coming, but it's not going to come in your lifetime, Josiah. I know you're listening. It's not going to come against you. Verse 19, for example, picking up where God's speaking. God talking to Josiah through these words. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you. Verse 20, Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. Again, I'm just reading this in the morning Bible study. I've read this story before. And I'm reading along, and you think, wow, this man was convicted. In fact, God saw his conviction. This wasn't an outward, worldly sorrow. This was real. This is God's assessment of Josiah's heart that he was broken. And if he was the king, what he was just given was a guarantee that in your lifetime everything's okay. I wonder sometimes what we would do if we were told everything's going to be okay for the next 30 years. Would we relax? Would we hit cruise control? Would we lose the sense of urgency in life? But I'm fascinated because that's not what Josiah did. When you look at what Josiah did beginning in verse 23, it is remarkable. In fact, as I thought through it, and I don't want to ever overstate something, it's easy when your heart is gripped by a particular text to make that the focal point of all of Scripture. But I would say this. If you want to know what does repentance look like, this isn't a bad chapter. If you want to know what repentance looks like in the heart, this isn't a bad chapter. Because even though God had told Josiah in your lifetime, you know, it's great that you're broken. In your lifetime, this isn't going to happen. Let's just kind of go through a little bit of what Josiah did. Verse 1 of 23, it says, Then the king said, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, got all the leaders together. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and all the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of God. In verse 3 he says, he made a covenant right then that they would keep those commandments. As soon as he heard the word from God that things would be okay in his lifetime, he didn't put it in cruise control. He immediately gathered all the people and said, they need to hear what I heard. They need to understand how God views this wickedness. And so he reads it. And the end of the verse says, and all the people entered into the covenant. This is one of those powerful times where it seems, sincerely, there was a wide swath of repentance. Josiah was convicted. He got all the leaders together and the people were convicted. And immediately, things started happening. Verse 4 says that the king commanded the priest to bring out of the temple of the Lord all these wicked things. 
They called them vessels of Baal, for Asherah, all the hosts of heaven. He brought out all this idolatry because the temple that God had called to be built was filled with idols. And not only did he bring them all out of the temple, they destroyed them. This was emphatic. The end of verse 4 says, And he burned them outside Jerusalem and the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. If you keep reading, this was going on, verse 5. He did away with the idolatrous priest. He got rid of all of them. He brought out the Asherah. He was burning things, destroying them. I assume part of the reason they were destroyed, even to the point of dust and then scattered the dust, is so that nobody could ever resurrect those idols. Nobody could ever resurrect those idolatrous articles. Verse 7, he broke down the houses of the cult prostitutes, the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord. What kind of wickedness is that? Verse 8, he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places. In other words, he wasn't going to have anywhere that people could worship false gods. He just went to town. He kept going. Verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which was apparently where people would sacrifice their children to Molech, he destroyed all of that. That's not going to happen again on my watch. Apparently, there were horses and chariots that had been dedicated to false god. They're all taken care of. Boom, they're gone. He broke them down. He smashed them through their dust. High places were destroyed. Broken pieces, sacred pillars, ashram, all these false articles of worship. He was on a destructive spree. He even defiled graves that were unholy and wrong. He took bones out of the ground to destroy them because there might be a chance that they were contaminating things because of how they got in the ground. Verse 20 is a fascinating thing. You want to talk about wholesale repentance. And this is 2 Kings chapter 23, yes, chapter 23, verse 20. All the priests of the high places who were there he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. That's how God had said deal with people who were worshiping false God. It was the death penalty. Josiah executed it. So he didn't just pay lip service to God. If there was anything that might have a hint of idolatry that might even remotely be possibly used to worship anything other than the one true God, it was destroyed completely. Ground in the earth. Dust. People were killed. Not only that, it wasn't all negative. They worshipped. They celebrated the Passover again. Verse 21. The king commanded all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. Verse 22 says this. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Using New Testament terminology, not only did they put off the old contaminated ways of worship, they put on the way of worship that God commanded. This was conviction. Across the board. And it seems like it wasn't just personal conviction. It seems like it might have been national conviction. Verse 24. He removed these other mediums and spiritists. And he was doing all of this. 
according to verse 24, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. I can't imagine repentance greater than that. If God said don't do it, it was gone. If God said do it, he was trying to do it. This was breathtaking. I'm sure Steve would rejoice if he preached a sermon one Sunday and everybody in the sanctuary transformed themselves. Obviously knowing it's the Spirit of God working, but the point is, these weren't just hearing. Josiah proved himself a doer of the word and not a hearer only who deluded himself. Again, I'm reading this in my morning quiet time. And up to this point, I remember a lot of this. I'm caught off guard again by how comprehensive the repentance was. And then I get to verse 25 and I think, wow. Before him, talking about Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He was fulfilling the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If that's where the story ended, it could be an incredible sermon. It could be an incredible picture. What does repentance look like? It's not halfway. It's wholesale. It's not that you get rid of some of the idols of your heart and then hold on to a couple in your pocket. No, you destroy them all. You get rid of them all. And in Scripture, from time to time, you see these moments of repentance. There are even pictures where God relents. You know, God was going to do certain things, and Moses pleaded with God. God relented. Now, I've told you all of this, and this isn't what gripped me. Because as I was minding my own business and plowing through this and finishing up yet another chapter as I was going through this, I came across verse 26. And this is the verse that I couldn't get out of my head. Someone who has the New American Standard, will you please read verse 26 for me right now? However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his uh, great wrath from which his anger burned against Judah because of all the publications with which Manasseh had provoked him. About fell out of the bed. That's not a happy ending. And I reread it. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And I was astounded. That's the verse that I don't remember ever tacking on to the end of the story of Josiah. I'm gripped partly by what God's attitude was towards sin. Fierceness. Great wrath. Burning anger. And I would go back and I would look at verse 25. He did everything according to the law of Moses. He he repented. And it looks like the entire nation repented with him. And it struck me again, verse 26. 
the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned. I am guilty myself when I'm not thinking clearly of underestimating the wrath of God. I think in my own heart at times, even though I would condemn other people for doing it, without thinking, I develop the grandfatherly Santa Claus picture of God in my mind. That at the end of the day, it's kind of swept under the rug and you still get your stocking filled. That even when you sin, maybe just do a few religious things and sort of it will appease God and then you can move on with your life. And as I pondered that, I thought, what more could a person or people do to escape God's wrath? They obeyed all the law. I mean, there was wickedness, no, no question. Manasseh was a wicked, wicked man. And his son after him was a wicked, wicked man. But then you see this good and happy ending where all of a sudden this shining star Josiah comes along and he's convicted and he's overwhelmed by guilt. And he transforms his life. You know God was transforming his heart. And he dotted every I and crossed every T from that point forward. He really did. I mean, God's assessment of him is that there was no king like him before and there was no king like him after. You could not get a better epitaph on your tombstone. There was no man like him before and there was no man like him after. No woman like him before, no woman after. And yet I kept coming back to verse 26. And I was struck by this thought. The wrath of God is not easily appeased. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that from a human's perspective, the wrath of God cannot be appeased. And what was gripping my heart was an awareness of the futility of most of the people living on this planet. Because even if they have heard the word of God, and countless haven't, but even if they have, the instinct of reaction is, let me see what I can do to fix it. Let me see what I can do to make up for what I've done. That's the tragedy and the tragic thinking that afflicts people in churches. I'm thinking of a particular scenario, but I've heard it many times. Someone is in a tight spot and they think their life is in jeopardy and they make God promises. If I went around the room, I'm sure some of you know people like that. Okay, God, I'll, I'll do whatever if you get me out of this. 99.9 times out of 100, they don't. Once the pressure's gone, they go back to life. Occasionally, somebody is truly convicted and changes. But when I read this text, I think about the fierceness of God's wrath. God is loving and merciful and patient and kind but if we ever adopt the thinking that says his love and mercy and patience and kindness causes his wrath to be ignored, we're wrong. And I was struck. Because when I thought about verse 26, I took out Manasseh and I put in my name. 
That is the picture of every one of us. We have provoked God by our sin. However bad we think we are, we're worse. And it was overwhelming to me to think that's how God views my sin. Even the little sins. It brings out a fierceness in God. It brings out God's great wrath. It's not just his wrath, it is his great wrath. And God's anger burns against our sin. And it is overwhelming. Because it is a hopeless circumstance. No matter how much you try and obey... If you could muster in your human strength the ability to do what Josiah did, it's not enough to turn away the wrath of God. If you could take the Bible and at this point make a clean break from everything and say, I'm going to obey every single command of God and I'm never going to stop and I'm going to do that until I die, compared to your sin, God's wrath still burns. I am guilty of minimizing my own sin. And I'm not saying this is some... I think we all can understand that. At least I didn't do what he did. At least I wasn't as bad as... And yet, for the least sin I ever committed in my life, as I look at this, I'm reminded that it is worthy of the fierceness of the great wrath of God. And even that little sin that doesn't bother me one iota provokes God's burning anger. And I almost identify at that point with that picture in the temple of woe is me. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Because if we are thinking rightly about our sin, we recognize we are hopeless. And here's what was striking to me as I was completing in my own heart these various thoughts that were haunting my mind. There is an urgency that people need to know Christ. Because if they don't, all they will ever know of God for all eternity is his fierce, great wrath that is poured out with a burning anger. Immediately I started thinking about that song in Christ Alone. Because we have no other hope. Romans 5, 9. I'll actually go back to verse 8. Many of us have these verses memorized. But if verse 8 it says this. Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. I think when I read 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 26, I recognized something 
of the fires of hell in that verse. And it made me all the more appreciative of what Christ did. But it also crystallized in my mind a thought that I first was contemplating because of Pastor Steve's teaching on it several times. And I've heard these things, but something about the way Pastor Steve presented it gripped me. And a full picture was completed. Understand this. The fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Joe. Because of all the provocations with which Joe had provoked him, that fierce wrath did not go away. I'm safe from it. I will never experience it. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're safe from it. It didn't go away. What's haunting is that's what Christ endured. And I was overwhelmed that the sinless Lamb of God would endure the fierceness of his Father's great wrath. That he would allow the anger that burned in God to be poured out on him. It can't be, but it is. I know I don't deserve it. Yet Jesus didn't just lead an example. He experienced that wrath. The fury of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God was poured out on our Savior. And we escape the wrath of God if we know Christ. It's just been a reminder to me of the price that Christ paid because of me provoking God. And it's incomparable to me knowing as I reflect on my life the multitude of sins with which I've provoked God. Even knowing I've sinned against God after becoming a Christian. I'm overwhelmed by the love That I was shown by God. Jesus in the garden. And I won't quote it correctly. Forgive me. He said Lord. If it's possible. Let this cup pass. And I think. That when Jesus said. But not my will. But your will. He understood. There was no other way. For Joe to get to heaven. Because Jesus knew this fierce and great wrath and burning anger was going to be poured out. And he was willing for all of its horror to stand in my place. I pray if you know Christ that your heart will well up with unending gratitude at the magnitude of what has occurred in your salvation. I wouldn't have been so touched by this if I hadn't, I think in some ways, grown cold to the reality of what was at stake. And I pray that God might give you an awareness of what's occurred. And if you don't know Christ, can I tell you, all of the church attendance you can muster... All the Bible reading you can muster. You can do everything you want from now until the moment you die. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, God's not going to turn from the fierceness of his great wrath 
with which his anger burned against you because of your provocations of a holy God. And I pray this will give you the sense of urgency that has gripped my heart. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm overwhelmed at your love and mercy. Lord, I can't comprehend that I sin against you, and I do. And I know I can't comprehend the vile nature of sin that would provoke your fierce, great wrath and your burning anger. But beyond that, I can't believe that Jesus died for me. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would have hearts of rejoicing. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ, they would flee from the fierce and consuming great wrath and anger which is burning against sin. And I pray, Lord, that they will come to understand and trust and place their faith in the one Savior who turns the wrath away from us and took the wrath instead. I pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.